Well, if you have a Bible uh, there with you, if you want to turn to the book of Philippians, if you might already be there from Rob's reading, our sermon passage today is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, a very short, very short passage. And I'll invite you, as is our custom, if you can do so, to stand for the reading of God's word today. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's uh, pray and ask God to uh, teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that it tells us about what to believe concerning you and how you would have us to live uh, for your glory in light of the gospel of Christ, uh, of our salvation. And we pray that you would once again work in us by your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Uh, sanctify us by your truth, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're, we're kind of continuing a, a brief mini-series of sorts in the book of Philippians. We're not going through the whole book, as is typically our custom. Um, in, in, a, in a way, I'm sort of trying to, uh, you could say I'm trying to buy my time as I prepare to get into the book of Revelation, Lord willing, next month. And I've always liked the book of Philippians and various verses and passages in this book. I've always stuck in my mind a lot. And so when I thought about what to do uh, here this month, a lot of these verses were coming to mind. And so I thought, well, why fight it? Let's just, uh, we'll call it, Rob likes to call his readings from Hebrews, highlights from Hebrews. We'll call this highlights from uh, Philippians. Um, last time we looked at the first six verses of the book, Philippians 1, 1 through 6. We call that the opening greeting or the opening salutation of Paul's epistle to the Philippian church. And we looked mainly at verse 6, where Paul tells us, if I can paraphrase, that, that God finishes what he starts. Uh, the verse 6 in the NIV says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Paul was telling the Philippians he was thankful for them. Uh, and why? Why was he so thankful for them whenever he prayed for them? Because he was convinced, he was persuaded that that he, God, who had begun a good work in them, was going to carry it on to completion until the day of, of Christ. Well, here in this text this morning in, in chapter 2, the next chapter, we see once again Paul talking about a similar subject, God being at work in the lives of, of all believers, the believers in Christ in Philippi and us here in Ramona as well. And he tells us that we are to obey the commands of Christ among other reasons, because why? Because God is the one who is at work in us, both to what? To will and to work, verse 13, for his good pleasure. So God being at work in us seems to be a recurring theme in the book of, of Philippians. Now, the first thing that might have jumped off the page at you, especially if you hadn't read it before or read it recently, is the phrase that Paul uses there in verse 12 where he says to us, he commands us really, to, quote, work out your own salvation. To work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, some people have read this this passage and studied it and found it to be confusing and even troubling in some cases because they mistakenly think that somehow Paul, they think that Paul is somehow saying that we are to work for our salvation. That would be troubling if that's what Paul were saying. 
But thankfully, that is not what he is saying. Paul elsewhere, and I think even in this text, makes it very clear that our salvation is entirely by the grace of God and is the gift of God. It's not something we can ever earn or merit or deserve. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, one of those many passages that would be very good. If, you ever, if you're in the habit of memorizing scripture, I would put that high up on your list to memorize Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Same writer, the Apostle Paul writes there. He says, for by grace... For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. You think about it. He doesn't use the exact same words, but in that passage too, Paul talks about the work of God in you. Because what does he say there? By grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. What's not your own doing? Your salvation, all of it, even the faith to believe in Christ is the work of God in you. If you're a believer in Christ, it's because God made you alive in Christ, brought you to life from from spiritual death, and gave you the faith and granted you the repentance to believe and turn to Christ. So having said that we're saved by grace and that our salvation is is a gift of of God, is Paul now saying in Philippians chapter 2, Suddenly, is he now stopping and saying that that we're saved by our works? Is Paul contradicting himself here when he says that we are to work out our salvation? Is he implying in some way that we are to earn our salvation by works? God, God forbid, that's not what he's saying here. Look again, look again at verse 12. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence... But much more in my absence, work out your your salvation, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice, notice Paul says that we are to work out our salvation, not that we are to work for it. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He doesn't say work to keep your salvation. He says work out your salvation. There's a big difference between those two things, between working it out and working for it. Many commentators, many preachers in, in, in years past have, have noted, I think very wisely, that it's, it's a matter of us believers in Christ working out what God has worked in. It's not us ginning it up in our own strength. It's not us producing it in and of ourselves. It's working out what God himself has worked in. Not only that, but the word that Paul uses here that is translated to work out has the idea of putting something into practice. It's really what he's talking about here. Putting something into practice or, or making it effective or productive. The thing itself is already there. He's, he's telling us to put that into practice. Not only that, but the context of what he's talking about, even in this very verse, is that of obedience, isn't it? What does he say? He says, therefore, my beloved, verse 12, as you have always what? Obeyed. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own self. He's talking about obedience. He's talking about obeying the commands of Christ. That's very clear that he's talking about basically living a life that's characterized by obedience to the commands of our Lord, and and that being the proper response to the salvation that we have in Christ, which is entirely by grace and is the gift of God. You're saved, now live like it is what he's saying here. So he's not, he's not contradicting himself. He's not saying that we have to work for 
our salvation. So to work out our salvation with fear and trembling is to put our salvation into practice or to bear the fruits of it in our lives. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He says, Paul, Paul is not thinking about any good works we may contribute to our salvation, but about how we are to respond to the salvation which is already ours, uh, ours already in Christ. We are not to work for it or to work it up, but to work it out. That is to make sure that its influence and implications permeate the whole of our lives. I think that's well put. Brothers and sisters, Paul would say, Beloved, in verse 12, are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Are you putting into practice your salvation in your daily lives in such a way that you're living in a way that is consistent with the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ? That's that's really what Paul calls the Philippians to do all throughout this letter, to live a life that's fitting with the gospel, that's fitting with what you believe and profess to believe. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, that's what the scriptures and the Apostle Paul here calls you and I to do, to live in such a way that is fitting with the gospel, to put into practice in your daily life uh, the gospel of Christ and the gospel of your salvation. Now, what what's Paul's rationale? What is What are his reasons, his motivations uh, that he calls us to think about in doing this? Why, in other words, why are you and I to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Now, the first hint at what Paul's rationale might uh, be is seen in the very first words of verse 12. It's kind of these, kind of those connecting words that we kind of gloss right over very often when you're reading the text. The first two words of verse 12 are what? So then, or therefore in some translations. Now this little phrase, so then, where does it point back to? What is it pointing us back to that Paul bases his command upon? He points back to what he said right before this in the first 11 verses of the chapter. In other words, Verses 12 and 13, this part about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, is the application or the takeaway of everything he said before it. When he talked about the humility of Christ and his uh, being obedient to death for our salvation. And so in the first few verses of, of chapter 2, Paul was, was exhorting, as, as Rob mentioned to us before he prayed, uh, that we are to be, quote, of the same mind and in full accord and of one mind, verses one and two. So Paul's exhorting the church in Philippi to be one, to live in a, in a united fashion in their belief and faith in Christ. He's still speaking in that context where he's calling the, the church at Philippi to, to Christian love, obedience to God's commands, humility, and unity in Christ. He's still talking about those very things when he gets to these verses in our text today. And he's also still talking about what he said in verses five through 11 when he points to Christ as our example and as our Redeemer. When he says that we are supposed to, what what, we're, what are we supposed to do there? He says that we're supposed to have the same mind in us that is ours in Christ Jesus, verse 5. Now what, what mind is ours in Christ Jesus? He tells us in the rest of that passage. He says that, uh, he talks about and points us to the humility of Christ our Savior in, quote, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, verse 7. Now think about that. I know that's we kind of take that for granted. We don't really think about how jarring that should sound to us. The Lord of glory, the Son of God, uh, took the form of a servant. 
the one to whom all creation owes obedience and service and praise and thanksgiving, took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. And then he says that he was also, what, verse 8, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord of glory dying in shame and agony on a cross for our salvation. And then also being after that and because of that, he was highly exalted so that, what does Paul say there? At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of those things that he talks about Christ there in those verses, all of that is to spur you and I on in our humility, service, and loving obedience. That's that's where he gets where he goes in verses 12 to 13. He's calling us back to look and, and to think about what Jesus Christ has done in accomplishing our salvation. Now, brothers and sisters, see how powerful a thing it is for us to contemplate or meditate upon the sufferings and the glories of our Savior. Theology, we think of, we hear the word theology or doctrine, We some of us kind of just shut off and think, oh, you know, that's all just theoretical stuff. It doesn't really have any practical application to our lives. Not so. What does Paul do? Paul says, think about Christ. Think about the Son of God, the Lord of glory, becoming, you know, coming in the form of a servant, uh, being born uh, as a, as a, in the likeness of men, being obedient to the point of death. You know, it's not an accident that Paul talks about obeying in the context of talking about Christ's obedience, even to the point of death. That's our, that's our example, and that's the basis for our obedience, is that Christ obeyed in our place and even laid down his life for our sins. See how the Lord uses the great scriptural truths of the sufferings and the glory of Jesus Christ to strengthen you in your faith and to transform your life. Paul doesn't just say, hey, be good. That's what we do, right? Be good, stop doing this, start doing that. Paul, Paul points to Christ and says, in light of all that, live this way. Live in a way that is fitting with the gospel of Christ. So, brothers and sisters, fill your minds and hearts with the word of God. With all that it tells you from cover to cover about your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and see how those great truths, the great doctrines of the gospel of Christ, See how those things renew your mind and transform your life, even as Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2. So that's the first rationale or reason Paul gives us for, for working out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's another rationale or reason he gives us in verse 13. There he says that we are to do all that, not just because of the work of Christ in the past in accomplishing our salvation from sin, which is what he talks about in the previous verses, but also because, quote, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. One of the reasons, one of the motivating factors Paul points us to in our efforts, which it's hard work, right? To work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to live a life of grateful obedience, is the fact that God is at work in you. That you're not on your own to do everything all by yourself. Just as God being at work in them from the very first day they had believed in Christ was such a great encouragement to Paul that he thanked his God for them always in all of his prayers, as we saw back in verses 1 through 6 of the opening chapter of the letter. But so now here also in our passage, we see that the work of God in us ought to motivate us to make us make every effort to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's a pretty amazing thing that Paul does here. He says, work out your salvation. Why? Because God's at work in you. 
You're not by yourself. You're not on your own. Our text is speaking of the work of God and our sanctification. Now, it's always good at times, uh, from time to time, to define our terms and and to, to not only to remind those of us who have already been taught. Maybe you've heard that word. Maybe you've been here long enough that you've heard me use it and define it. Uh, you already know what's coming as soon as I say the word. Probably that I'm going to use the shorter catechism to to define the term. For you, but I think it's good for us to explain these kinds of terms to those who might be new to the faith, or to those who haven't been taught at all. And so, uh, I think this is as good as time as any to, to define our term. And shorter Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism, defines sanctification this way: What is sanctification? You know, catechisms they ask a question and give you the answer. What is sanctification? The answer in question thirty-five is: Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, not just your justification. Sanctification is is God's free grace in your life. But it's the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Now, Now, justification, justification, the, the catechism says, is an act, not a work, an act of God's free grace in which God does what? He forgives all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, Quote, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Justification is, a, is an act of God's grace. It's, it's a, a one-time act of God's free grace with ongoing effects. Once justified, always justified. It is not a process. You do not grow in your justification. The minute you come to Christ by faith, you are as justified as Christ is and always will be. Because you're justified in in Him. It's a past and lasting act of God in our salvation, where we speak about in the past tense. It's like if you tell someone, maybe you have in the past in a conversation, you know, are you saved? And yes, I have been, past tense, saved. That's the kind of past tense that justification talks about. Or when you say, I am saved. It's a done deal. I, I have been, I am saved. Sanctification is the present an ongoing work of God's free grace in our lives. And what does it say there in the, in the Catechism? It's the ongoing work of God's free grace, quote, in which he works in us by his Holy Spirit uh, to renew us in the image of God in every way and enables us, what does it say there, more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. This is the present tense of our salvation in which God right now is also presently saving us from our sin How? By working in us by his spirit, as Paul says in Romans 8.13, to put to death the deeds of the body and to live a life of obedience to the glory of, of Christ. And notice that the knowledge of God being at work in us does not and should not result in apathy. It should not result in laziness. It should not result in passivity in living the Christian life. This is not let go and let God which is a silly idea if you think about it to begin with. It's it's God is at work, therefore get to work. Your energy is not wasted because God is at work in you. We are to work at our salvation, to live in accordance with the salvation that is ours in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, precisely because God is at work in us. It isn't wasted effort. Not only that, but this is not a matter of God doing his part and us doing our part. We, we sometimes mistakenly think of sanctification in those kinds of terms. Not that you're 
not doing something, but it's the, it's the work of God's free grace in you. Paul says that even the willingness or desire to do this is whose work? Who, who did that? Who put that there? God did. You don't even want to obey unless God gives you the, the desire to obey. So how much credit do we get to take for it? Nada, zip, zero, nothing, goose egg. Even the will to do it, God has to give. And God does give. What does he say there? He says, Paul says, it's God who is at work in us, quote, both to will and to work. We, we would like to, to, to we, we want to claim the credit for as much as we can normally. We would like to say, well, I had the desire and God helped me do it. God helped those who helped themselves. Is that what, is that what Paul is teaching here? No, he says that God is the one who works in us both to will and to work. John Calvin writes about this verse. He says, there are in any action two principal parts, the will and the effective power. In other words, the will to do it and the actual doing of it. Both of these he ascribes wholly to God. What more remains to us to glory in? Who, who gets all the glory and the credit for it? Not us. That's half the point, isn't it? You know, perhaps that's why, why Paul mentions fear and trembling. Maybe that, ver- maybe that part of the verse, conf- you know, you found that a little bit odd or confusing. I think that's what he's getting at here. The whole context is humility. The whole context is humility and obedience. So Paul mentions fear and trembling. The knowledge of God being at work in us should humble us and keep us from all boasting and glorying in the flesh. As Jesus our Lord says himself in John chapter 15, verses 4 through 5, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit, and here it is, for apart from me you can do what? Nothing. Not some things, not a few things, not most, nothing. Apart from Christ, we can't do anything. We don't even want to do anything. We don't even want to obey the Lord's commandments, at least not from the heart and not truly. Apart from Jesus Christ and the work of his spirit within us, we can never hope to bear fruit or really do anything. Apart from him, he says, we can do nothing. Even the very desire to do God's will and to love God and keep his commandments. Remember 1 John 5, 3, when, when the apostle John tells us what it means to love God. This is love for God. What? That we love him and keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Only God can do that. Only God, by his work, of his Holy Spirit within the life of a believer can cause God's commandments to not feel like a burden anymore. If you're a believer in Christ, God's law is not a a burden to strap on your back. It's, how do I love God? Look at the commandments. They tell you how to love God with your hands and your feet. The knowledge of God being at work in us by his Holy Spirit in, in his work of sanctification should spur us on in the pursuit of holiness and seeking to live a life that's pleasing to God. That should be, it should be an encouragement to you. I know very often you probably don't look in the mirror often and think, I feel like God's at work in me. And that's why God gives you the church. Because none of us feel like God's much at work in us, but the rest of us recognize it. I think there's a, I think there's a reason, there's some wisdom from God in, in doing it that way. We often are much more uh, apt to recognize God at work in each other than we are in the mirror. 
And it should spur us on in a way that precludes or prevents us from becoming arrogant or proud or boastful. It should produce in us a spirit of humility, giving all the glory to God, because if God's at work in you, even to will and to work, God gets all the glory and we we don't. It doesn't cause us to puff ourselves up and to compare, compare ourselves with someone else, because who do you have? What do you have that you haven't been given? If you're growing in holiness, why are you growing in holiness? What makes you, quote-unquote, better than the person next to you if you think you are? Not you. The only growth you have in holiness is given by God, by the work of his spirit. We also see here in our short text that the Christian life, the life of godliness or holiness, can be summed up in the idea of living a life that's pleasing to God. Isn't that what he says there in the text? He says, for it is God, verse 13, who works in you both to will and to work what? For his good pleasure. Living a holy life is living a life that, not perfectly, not not sinless perfection, but is living a life that is pleasing to God. Isn't that what Paul also teaches back in Romans 12, verses 1 to 2? He writes there, he says, I I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. You know, when he says that, what's he talking about? Everything he said before. The first 11 chapters of Romans is all about the gospel of Christ. And he says, I appeal to you, brothers, uh, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. You, you can offer God a sacrifice that is acceptable to him if you're in Christ. And that, 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 that sacrifice is a holy life. Offering your bodies, not just your emotions, not just your experience, your bodies themselves, as holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Then he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is what? Good and acceptable and perfect. God's not, Paul, you know, Paul is not giving us a standard that we can never hope to attain. He's not talking about sinless perfection in this life. That only comes in heaven when we're with the Lord and absent from the body and after the resurrection. Perfection is for heaven, but holiness is for this life. Sanctification is for this life. And we can, by God's grace and the work of his spirit within us, live in a way that is holy and acceptable to God, and we can learn by God's word to discern what is good, what God defines as good, what is acceptable to God, and what is perfect or complete to him. In light of God's mercies to us in Christ, we are to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to God. That's what Paul's talking about here in Philippians 2. Same thing, different different phrasing, different terms, different words, but he's talking about the same thing. You and I are not in any way justified or saved by our good works. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, not by works so that no man can boast. Now, while you're not saved by good works, you are saved, what? For them. For the purpose of them. There's a difference. We don't say, hey, I'm not saved by works, so no works. We say, no, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace because God wants us to do good works as a result of his grace, as a result of our salvation. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2.10? You know, if you're going to memorize Ephesians 2, 8, 9, don't skip verse 10. It's one more verse. It's not that long. What does Paul say there? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
I mean, God even prepares them ahead of time. Like, what doesn't God do here? He works in you to will and to work, and he also prepares those works ahead of time for you that you might walk in them. God gets all the glory and all all the credit. And so you and I must make every effort to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says. And this was this is not wasted effort. It might feel like wasted effort at times, but it's not. Why? Why is it not wasted effort? Because you're not on your own. We're not on our own, but rather it is God who works in you, verse 13, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So so work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work, work at it. Make every effort to live a holy life and know that God is the one who, who works in you both to will and even to work according to his good pleasure. That uh, he is pleased uh, to accept, as our confession even says, talks about there's a whole chapter in our confession on good works. And it says there that in Christ, God is not only pleased to accept you, you, your person, as righteous in his sight because of Christ's righteousness alone. He's also pleased by his grace alone to accept and is pleased by your good works. Even though they are far from perfect, even though there are even sinful things attached to them, your best good work that you ever do in this life, is it perfect? Is there nothing sinful in any possible way attached to it? No. And yet, by God's grace, he accepts not only you as righteous, but he also is pleased to accept and even reward our imperfect good works and accept them as pleasing in his sight because he accepts them how? The same way he accepts you, in his Son. And I think that is an encouragement. I hope that's an encouragement to you to live a life of holiness and and a life that's pleasing to God because you're living it by by the grace of God and his work within you. Let's Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our justification that we have in Christ, that in Christ alone, by your grace alone, through faith in him, that you forgive us all of our sins, and you accept us as sinful as we are, you accept us as righteous in your sight, only for the righteousness of Christ, your Son, our Lord, imputed to us and received by faith alone. But we also thank you for the work of your grace in our lives, that, that, that work that you carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, that work of sanctification, that you do not leave us in our sins when you, you save us from our sins in Christ and that you are at work in us, enabling us more and more to, to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness, that it is the beginning of the glorification that we'll all have one day in heaven where we'll never sin again. Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you that we have the hope of heaven if we are in Christ, that we have the hope and the sure hope of one day being entirely free from the power and presence of sin. We'll never again struggle with sin as we do now. We'll never again struggle with with the consequences of our sins or the sins of others, that in heaven will be no sin, no unclean thing, but also that you, you don't wait for them to start your work in us, that you are chipping away and molding us and renewing us after the image of Christ even now. We thank you for that. We ask that you would forgive us for the ways that we have let our hands hang loose and and our knees get weak and not put forth the effort of walking in holiness. Forgive us for the ways that we have been arrogant and prideful and and that we think that these things, uh, we think that we attain holiness on our own or are better than anybody else. Lord, we ask that you would uh, be pleased to work in us by your spirit, that you might more and more work in us both to will and to work according to your good pleasure. Glorify yourself in your church. Glorify yourself in us. Help us to live in a way by your grace that is pleasing in your sight uh, that you might receive much glory. 
for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.